In the afterlife, you could be headed for a serious strife. Now you make this scene all day, but tomorrow there'll be hell to pay. In the afterlife, you could be headed for the serious strife. Now you make this scene all day, but tomorrow there'll be hell to pay. People listen attentively. I mean about future calamity. I used to think the idea was obsolete until I heard the old man happen to speak. This is a place where eternally fire is applied to their body. Teeth are extruded and put a ground and baked into cakes with are passed around. In the afterlife, and the very other serious life, now you make this scene all day, but tomorrow there'll be hell to pay. Beauty, talent, fame, money, refinement, tap skill, and brains are all the things you try to hide will be revealed on the other side. And the D and the A and the M and the N and the A and the T and the I O N. Lose your face, use your name, then get fitted for a suit of flame. The D and the A and the M and the N and the A and the T and the I O N. Use your face, lose your name, then get fitted for a suit of flame. Does anyone remember that song? Is anyone a geriatric millennial and can name that song? Or is that before your time? I'm going to see if I get anything from you people. Fight the hornips. Yeah, da, 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 da. Squirrel nut zippers, that's correct. Hell. People think of squirrel nut zippers as part of the swing revival, but they really were kind of doing a different thing than uh, like your cherry poppin' daddies or your big bad voodoo daddies. Um, I will confess that I, in fact, had that album. I had the the uh, the Cherry Pop and Daddy's album that had Zoot Suit Riot in it, which terrible. That classic example of why I didn't buy records when I was a kid because it always seemed like a bad deal. You're taking a bet that what the, any of the other songs on the album are going to be as good as the song you heard, and yeah, nothing on that fucking album is anywhere near as good or as catchy as uh, Zoot Suit Riot was. But I also own the Squirrel Nut Sippers album, which is really good. Hell, I believe it's called. Is it Hell? Or... There's a lot of s- solid songs on there. I will, I will defend them, and that's one of them. Okay, so today we were gonna t- we're gonna talk about uh, the cold book, which I gotta say, not exactly what I wanted it to be. I really did want something that was gonna be more grounded. Uh, the way that uh, Foner is. I wanted like basically Foner's approach in terms of, you know, doing the whole systemic and grassroots simultaneous, you know, the, the narrative, uh, like the densest narrative rope. Uh, and I'm sure there is one like that, but I'm not as well read on that historical era to know what it is. And it was not Cole, I must say. It was a little too uh, removed 
from the action, as it were. Uh, so I don't think we're going to read the rest of it. Um, I want to, and besides, I'm feeling like I want to move forward anyway. I mean, I've been looking backward out of despair, and I've realized, like, well, what is this? This is like this is an expression of despair, and and I realize that a lot of what I talk about is trying to articulate despair and what it means to be politically self-aware uh, in a time of despair. And people can, of course, say, oh. There are plenty of times in history when people have felt political despair. This is classic navel-gazing, uh, presentist narcissism, typical of a millennial, to assume, oh, yes, this time it's different, as though there have always been a period where everything felt hopeless. And I will say, of course, that's true. But I would also posit that the totalization of capitalism, the totalization of our world system, the totalization of our information matrix, the totalization of our access to information means that we have reached a theoretical barrier of human potential that is unrivaled uh, in history. Because you, every, almost every point of total despair you can point to in world history has had the possibility of transcendence within it. Because as much as the world seemed hopeless, there was space to imagine uh some sort of transcendence some sort of upward movement ascension rather than endless declension unto and sickness unto death they had heaven in other words we have no we don't have heaven like nietzsche was right we killed god in the pursuit of turning ourselves into god and now we are worshiping ourselves but that is at the expense of a spiritual understanding of the universe, any kind of connection to anything outside of ourselves, any ability to imagine death as anything other than the annihilation of the universe, the end of the world, Armageddon, but the annihilatory kind. And without like the winking out of nirvana, but rather just the screaming horror all we can imagine is death as being on Flight 93. And the thing is, we're always on Flight 93. Life is Flight 93. The question is, are you going to scream and bash your head against the wall, or are you going to uh, re uh, defeat the, the uh, fiction, the fantasy, the false delusional belief that is generating the fear, which is that there's anything to be afraid of? which is that death is some sort of insurmountable annihilation. That's not the case. Believing it is, it's the fundamental notion that drives our, our individualism, and it is a fantasy. It's a fantasy that we need at a base level. We need to have some separation from the world. We need some fear of death in order to be able to negotiate it. And, and, and life, because life moves forward, life wants to flourish, that means we have to want to save ourselves. But that sense of danger should be proportionate to the immediacy of it, the suddenness of it. Natural death should not be afraid, should not scare us, because it would be understood by us at a metaphysical level. The way we understand ourselves is separate now, in a way that is beyond the, the need to articulate or reinforce consciously, that there is no separation. that we are all part of a cyclical world where we are feeding a system that 
we are part of and that exists eternally. And if you operate, and the thing is, though, that can only be sustained in a social context. There is no social context. There is no time spent with others. Instead, there is time spent with ourselves, which means time spent thinking about ourselves and a time spent building this ego that cannot conceive of death. I think this is all shit that Ernst Becker talked about, denial of death. I'm assuming. I never read it. I have never read any of these books. People keep saying, hey, you sound like him. And it's like, yeah, probably. I'm getting it. I'm getting it without having to do the reading. It's great. I feel like I'm fucking and playing Contra. Just beep, 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 beep. But, I'm, but, but what that means, the implication of this that matters is that it means we are the first generation who is fe- seeing before around them a terminal uh, decline wherein they can't imagine a better future for themselves. They can't imagine a better future crucially for their children. They cannot imagine the perpetuation of a legacy. And a legacy is what stands in instead of our um, – that's what soothes us instead of social existence. That's what makes us pursue capitalism so that we can leave a legacy. And that is a way to extend our ego beyond our death and allow us to focus on a task. And that's the thing. We are in a, the, What despair causes you – is to not be able to focus on a task because what's the reason to? What's the upside? What is the what is the uh, rational reason that I should pursue this? Why should I build up institutions? Why should I cooperate beyond myself if there is no hope for me to leave a legacy? And that is the vicious cycle that perpetuates us towards Armageddon. And at the very top, you have these people who have started to believe a new religious delusion on top of the delusion of self, which is eternal self through the uh, uh, use of technology. The singularity, the theos, the musks, the, the, the cyborgs at the top. That is all that can persist. The rest of us stuck below where we know we're below the threshold of getting into the bunker where they're going to jack us into the computer and we can play Mario Kart with Galileo for eternity, if you don't have that to look forward to, if you don't have that as a real possibility, something to soothe you, you can't be soothed. You're in terror. And what do you do? You You just try to kill yourself. You destroy yourself, not consciously, but through the annihilation of that thought, the annihilation of the, 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 the scary thing, which is what generates all of our addictions, neuroses, horror, the attempt to turn off this fucking blinking light in our brains, the check engine light that's always on. And we t- and so we either confront it and are driven mad by our inability to resolve it, the fact that we can't imagine changing this, we can't do politics meaningfully, uh, and then just the hedonistic pursuit of uh, distraction. They're two ends of the same coin, though. They are the same thing. They're just the Janus faces. Hedonism and the sadism that associate that goes with it is uh, the pursuit of pleasure. But so is uh, uh, hysteric, like social justice pursuit. That is also and like the neo Puritan purification of the ego or purification of the self, purification of sin because of the imagined uh, the the imagined superego. Because that's what happens. You either pursue that, you either indulge the id in these moments, or the or the superego and and uh, reactionary, indulgent, hedonistic politics is the politics of in of that of the id of just pure satisfaction. But some people aren't built to get 
pleasure out of that because they're too aware of all the horror. They are too, they've convinced themselves too much that they're good people because that is how they keep their ego up by saying they're good. It's the same thing as the Puritans. They emerge into a world where God is starting to die. Like the real living God for the Puritans is, is becoming a memory. All they have is this Calvinist fucking rationalist God in their mind, this reasoned out algorithm that says, well, if God exists, therefore they're uh, all powerful. Therefore they have complete control. Therefore I am predestined to either be saved or uh, damned. Well, then you either party like it's 1999 or you act like you're saved. And that's what we're all doing. That is the fucking for the liberals, for the liberal and left, they are performing for that, uh, that imagined other, the big Lacanian other, just staring furnace portal eyes at us at all times and making us pursue a politics that cleanses ourselves. It is the end pursuit. It's the same social strata. The people who came to this country, not because they needed to, not because they were fleeing debt or they were impoverished, but the, uh, Relatively prosperous Puritan plant, Puritan uh, settlers were the emergent middle class having its first nervous breakdown about being in the middle class. Because once that collective conscious concept of God dies, you have to create a, uh, a totally internal one. And for the Puritans, it could be a real God. It could be a God that was transcendent and that could send you to heaven. But now, after the Enlightenment, thanks a lot, Voltaire, after the scientific revolutions of the 19th century, thanks a lot, Darwin, we, if we're really over-cultured people, can't believe any of that. It's like the Rocco's Bacillus bullshit, like ideas that once you come in contact with have tainted you. As soon as the possibility that the world can exist without God, that there is a wind-up universe that extends itself through the mechanical processes of evolution and stellar formation and all this stuff, as long as that possibility exists and you know it exists, you can't believe anymore. You can't believe in anything anymore. Now, that doesn't mean you might not be religious and you're going to double and triple down on your religiosity, but you're going to be doing it to ignore that voice, to ignore the red light blinking. And I would say that that is what makes this the first generation to truly be living with political despair, political and metaphysical despair. We will be destroyed. We will be annihilated. There will be nothing left of our existence. In the near term, planetary extinction, because once again, if you know that there's a possibility that the thawing of the permafrost will unleash a chain of events that will cause Earth's atmosphere to hyper-carbonify uh, uh, and turn Earth into Venus. If you know that possibility exists scientifically, and it does, and most people who are aware of things, who pay attention to the news because they think it makes them a good person, they know that too. And then once again, as long as you know it's a possibility, you are now thrown into doubt forever. As soon as you know that the, that the annihilation is possible... There it is. And we know that the course is putting us in that direction. As soon as you know that, you can't imagine that you're going to have a legacy. No legacy. No kids. 
They certainly won't have kids. It'll all be gone. You can't solo, console yourself that way. So you can live for today. And that's what we're all doing. We're all living for today, but we're in a condition of material decline, which means we can't enjoy ourselves. We can't enjoy ourselves because even as we indulge, we indulge less and less and the indulgence is less satisfying over time. We're stuffed. We're, we're muncher. We're eating our goddamn corn. We're stuffing ourselves to just not feel the decay. And so this is a new situation because in previous times, the times that Marx imagined would exist when the final conflict of capitalism came, uh, when you have a system where there's no – it's just, it's creating so much human misery and alienation and there's nowhere for it to go. You've ex- Like we're now in a global system. There's nowhere to vent the steam. The frontiers really are over and all the new ones are fake. Like the media, like it's all just a, a way to scam us into see, saying in the system while they fucking uh, try to flee to their fucking uh, cyber bunkers. Like that, all that stuff, all these new speculative investments that we have, like crypto fucking currency and, uh, and NFTs and all this shit. This is this just like when in the 20s they gave stocks to people. It's a way to keep people gambling, keep people at the table. When you got to that point, the thing would blow up because people would have, as they said in the manifesto, nothing to lose but their chains. But we are now in a, a, a era where um, imperialism allowed for this huge explosion in consumer uh, um, purchasing power among the working class at the center of capitalism that it essentially bought them off. And now we are so disconnected from ourselves socially, not just in building like a spirituality, but just having an understanding of how to resist politically if we wanted to. We don't even know how it works. We are so little memory. How many of us grew up with union households and how many people work in union union jobs now? You don't have the, uh, the social knowledge or the spiritual knowledge. Oh, I gotta close the blinds, apparently. Ah, fuck. You got a rare torso look there. You got some torso. So we're consuming. And it paralyzes us because... Even though we're not happy and we know we're not happy, we have something to lose. We have something to risk, and we can't believe that our risk will be rewarded. We are fatally paralyzed because since we can't believe that any sacrificial move will be worth it, it will always, in game theory terms, be in our most rational interest not to pursue it, not to risk it. Like, this is science. This is a, I could write this shit in a scientific fucking equation. I swear to God, we are all powered by belief. Belief in something. And the matrix of those beliefs orient us towards courses of action. And they are interlocked and interwoven strands 
of belief, belief in things, things that aren't real in any sense, because that doesn't exist, but things that are affirmed over and over again by our perception of uh, existing, by our time on earth, by our being in our bodies. No, it's not idealist because I'm saying that's why people do what they do, but they don't know what these things are. This isn't something they're choosing. This is inflicted upon them by their life, by the experiences on earth they have, which are determined by their material placement. They are where they are, what they emerge with, what they perceive, what their lives are, determines what they believe. That is why this is not idealism. We are motivated by belief, but we don't choose those beliefs. Those beliefs are chosen for us. We are wound up and set off, which means we are materially fixed. So we all believe in stuff, and that stuff is a bunch of different things. One of them, the front one that we need, one of the first ones, is the idea that we're a being that is separate from everything around it. And that's a necessary precondition for consciousness. In fact, it is consciousness. And then our degree of consciousness is our degree to which we pull away from the moment we're in. We pull and live in the echoing moment behind what we're experiencing. And then think about it. Because it is in that gap that we create a map of the future that we live in. And that, that projection is reality. It is a self-generated movie, a backdrop, a hologram. And what makes that up is what we've experienced. Garbage in, garbage out. The thing that determines our action is the specific arrangement of those uh, experiences. Those time and place that these things happen to us. And over time, that creates an emergent property of self-conscious consciousness that then bootstraps you into being a, uh, a actual free will having conscious creature. It bootstraps it into existence because eventually you have so much time to build such a real world around you, a real future that you can inhabit by making decisions the more you believe in that, the more your actions are determined by it and not by what is just happening around you. What's happening in your head right after what is happening to you occurs. And that is where actual free will, autonomous consciousness emerges in that gap. Ah. Uh. So we have to rebuild belief beyond the self. Because as I said, that self was once one thing that we believed in among a bunch of other ones. The, the, our love expressed to the people around us, our understanding of the world through the stories that they tell, and the, and the ritual lot, rituals we perform around these stories that are framed around human uh, flourishing. In the early age, in the early, early stages of the building of, like, human society, when you're talking about bands in harmony with nature, the stories they're telling are stories that are advantageous to the 
collective pursuit of a group. But over time, as humans react to uh, material conditions changing, as it becomes harder to sustain life in a certain geographic area, and you have to move and change your relationship to the world around you, that you accumulate these bifurcations, these exploitative classes. The one side of the divide of people who can spend the time in their head long enough to wield a tale and tell a story to those uh, who are going to hear it. And that distinction creates your distinct, the, the categories of labor, the separation into uh, more efficient allocations of resources that build up civilization on the back of exploitation. Because we say we're different than others, and then we 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 think we are different from others, but that we is it's part you, but it's part everybody else. But when you need to survive and you need to store surplus, then all of a sudden some people need to be less you than before. Some people need to suffer in a way that you wouldn't want someone that you really felt was part of you to suffer, but they have to suffer for everyone's survival. But over time, those calcify and you get cultures built around entirely the people on the top of that, entirely among them, the, the, the people on the bottom only experiencing it through vicarity, not through their participation in it. And that separation over time gets deeper and deeper, and then technology is created to allow it to sustain itself. Because without technology, none of this happens. Without technology, the hyper-exploitation of capitalism isn't possible. Because how do you get that many people to do that? Because there's more of them than there are of you. If all you have is a fucking stick, if all you have are, are, are rudimentary regimes of like slave labor or feudal oversight... You need a lot of participation from people in that system. You need them to believe in something about the world around them. Unless they're being compelled uh, by technology. Unless they're being compelled from outside. And the intensification of technology is what allows capitalism to emerge, which, which necessitates a hyper-exploitation that would not be possible in a more, uh, in a more intimate social setting. Like, look, look what happened in the year. The history of feudalism is a history of periodic and violent and, and volcanic and very threatening uh, peasant uprisings. Like clockwork. Things get too bad. People get fed up and they stop believing, not in maybe the king, not in God, certainly, uh, but in like the local elite as they understand them. And so you had to back off. But if you have technology, you don't have to back off. You can bomb their huts. Like the, 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 the Great Peasants' War of the, the, the 1520s, uh, that was put down by uh, fucking guys with sticks, just like the, just like the guys with sticks uh, who made up the peasant army. Of course, it wasn't totally even. Those guys had uh, the, 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 the soldiers of the aristocracy. Of course, these are regal knights, descendants of the fucking uh, Teutonic knights and shit. They have armor, they have lances, they have horses, but that's about it. Maybe, what, at this point, maybe a fucking couple of early cannons or arquebuses? Holy shit. This is basic, almost a level playing field. Now, 
post-capitalism, when you saw when you saw advanced industrial capitalism cutting through uh, the pre-capitalist world like a fucking buzzsaw, you saw the exploitation that never could have existed in any other system. It just explode across Africa and Latin America and Asia. And that's because of technology. It creates a distance in time between, between you and the exploitation that you are benefiting from. And we live in a situation, when I say we, I mean the people listening to this, the people who I, my audience are, the people who have had the similar enough experience of living in America to use the same, to have the same language as me, so that when I talk to them, they get what I'm saying. That's who I'm talking about when I say we. Because there's no point for me to talk to anybody else about this stuff, because this is subjective experience. This is the stuff that matters because it's what we have to focus on instead of these abstract political categories. Like what I find so frustrating about and and ultimately fruitless about political discussion at this point is that it's all framed at a level of abstraction that goes so far away from experience that you're not really talking to people. You're just running through algorithms. You're running through argument algorithms so that you can avoid dealing with the reality around you, the despair that you feel. Once again, understandable. So you need to get more specific to get anywhere. So you have to choose language, and you have to choose an idiom, and that's what I've done. And so when I say we, that's who I mean. We are now in a situation where we have, we inherited a a world where we were at the top of this food chain of exploitation. And the political spectrum throughout a system, and capitalism is now a world system, that has encompassed all the other world systems that it hooked into to come to, into life. I think the Wallerstein thesis is essentially correct. You had these local dynamos going of economy, and then you had the emergent machinery of a capitalism, and over time it just screwed its way into all of them. And what political, what political ideology is within that framework, on the, on the regular scale, on the scale of like, I still endorse the system as it exists. Like the traditional left-right political scale, shorn of its extremes, the one where you could realistically engage in politics at an electoral level and invest yourself, which means even if you think you're at the extremes, I'm sorry, if you care about who's president, you have invested yourself in this thing. And so even if you don't believe in it, your actions validate and reinforce a system that has this orientation. Exploitation is unavoidable. Exploitation and misery within the system is necessary. It is fueled by it. It is this grease that runs it, even though it doesn't have to. Even though we're now at a point where we have enough technology to distribute much more equally and less neurotically and, and, and remove a lot of just these, these persistent uh, social canker sores that are created by our need to dominate. Like the anxiety created at the top of this relationship. Not to mention the horrifying misery at the bottom of it. You, you don't need either of it. But because we're stuck in the short term and we don't believe other people are real, we have to pursue our most selfish interests all along the line. And then it's our politics just become a question of, well, how do we orient ourselves towards that? And that really is determined not by how good you are as a person, but aesthetic preferences that are generated by your lived distance from exploitation. Liberals and conservatives do form a real 
uh, authentic political spectrum, left-right. But it is understood as, I think, not about ideology. It should be understood as a relationship, a time-space relationship to exploitation. The right wing is oriented around living near the point of exploitation, which is why the right wing, in America anyway, is the final expression of the planter ideology of the antebellum slave-owning class. Sitting on your veranda, watching others labor for you. All that idle time, but right next to the point of misery. Sitting there and watching it happen. And having to consider yourself the protagonist of history, a good guy, in some way. You build a politics around that. Liberalism is the polit- in America is the descent of the politics of those Puritans who settled the North, the land that was, and they and they didn't got, they there was no slavery there, not necessarily because of how good they were, but because the fucking geography didn't allow for it. There were slaves in Salem. Tichuba was a slave, but slavery couldn't persist and thrive there because it was all fucking clay and gravel. There's no rich, real loam in New England. The, the best you can see in that part of the country is, is, this, is a hard scrabble subsistence farmerhood. That's why they all became fucking merchants. And their, their exploitation is removed. They're sitting in a counting house. They're, they're passing around bills of sale. The exploitation is, is happening next to them. Well, those people are being paid for their time. Or they indentured themselves to get across the water. I'm doing this part of a rules-based order. I'm doing this because I'm observing manners that I mistake because they're all we have with morality. And then liberalism is built around that. And liberalism is the driver towards uh, like universal recognition of humanity, which is good and necessary and is part of the dynamic, the progressive dynamic of capitalism in that it accumulates things. It accumulates capital that is necessary to, uh, uh, to ac- accommodate human life and sustain uh, civilization and flourishing and increase the number of people there are, the number of consciousnesses, the amount that we can collaborate, the amount that we can make, uh, the technology that we could hypothetically use to distribute pain throughout the system in a way that allows us all time to flourish in our own way. Oh my God, real human liberty? Part of that is driven by a recognition of others as ourselves. But, and there is no place for that uh, for the working class because it's all being done at the level of culture. It's all an emanation. It's all being interpreted by those people sitting around in rooms in the East Coast. And so they express a universalism that we need, but it's shorn of class. But it doesn't mean we don't need it. But all it can ever do is pursue absolution. Because it cannot deny the need for exploitation. Because it takes it for granted. The same way the southern planter does. And so what are we seeing in this crisis moment? When Oh, the world's getting worse and worse. How is America going to thrive? I.e., how am I going to be able to feel good here? And for the, for the uh, descendants of the planters, the answer is, well, we just hyper-exploit people. What are you talking about? We have fun. We, we, we embrace in our carnivalesque evil but that we have decided is good. Like, oh, we're all Christians. Now, 
in our cosmology, uh, Jesus is Satan, but it's Christianity. There's, it's like the same thing LaVey did, only less self-consciously. Like LaVey is just, the Anton LaVey's Satanism is just pointing to Christianity and saying this is the logical uh, progression of this. Not that it is the inversion or denial, negation of it. It is the next iteration of the same thing. Because you guys worship Satan too. So great, we'll be Satan worshipers together. We'll dance in the fucking ashes. We'll cough in each other's mouths and we'll, we'll we're, because we're fuck your feelings. And that, of course, is right. That is that is Trump, right? That is Trump. That is that is the id desire expressed by Trump. But what the liberals have to respond to that is not liberatory politics. Is no, no. Don't you understand? The pleasure in life is feeling like a good person, and that means we have to sacrifice for other people. That means we have to decarbonize and we have to degrow. And we need to cleanse ourselves of the sin of being born in this position of decadence to be living atop this mountain of misery. We're going to cleanse ourselves. But that just means that other, I have to feel worse about being who I am. And I need to punish other people who are heretics, who don't feel bad enough about who they are. Meanwhile, the machinery of exploitation continues, but at arm's length. We don't put up a wall. We do the same thing, but we wouldn't put up a gaudy wall. Maybe we use uh, drones and fucking uh, proxy armies to maintain dictatorships in other countries that can catch them before they get to us. We use apps. We don't need servants because we have apps. We get an abstracted form of exploitation where, where we get less pleasure. We, don't, we, we have to save, we have to drive tiny cars or no cars at all and drive bikes. We have to, we have to uh, eat less meat. We have to go on vacation less. And the thing about that is, since neither of those answers deals with, uh, a both, since both those act answers accept doom as the premise, they both say we're going down, there's no hope. Well, if you're engaging in politics, which one of those you picks is not determined by how good you are it's determined, once again, by drumroll, where and when you've lived. Did you grow up enmeshed in uh, this right-wing, planter, ide ideological, uh, uh, counter-cultural uh, 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 superstructure that, that exists in all of these nodes of, like, of extraction industry and the franchisees, the beautiful boaters? And when you grew there... Did you fit in or did you not fit in? Once again, not determined by you. Determined by the ridges of your brain and the accident of your skin color and things like that. And, and that is what determines it. So then you come out and you have a political ideology and you pick one of these two sides. But you're not the talking about politics. You're not talking about politics as, as a thing of believing in a future. You're talking about a regime of punishment of others. Who is going to pay? Who is going to pay for the fact that if I'm having fun... I'm worried I'm going to have less fun in the future. I'm having fun, but my kid's not having as much fun. My kid's on fucking fentanyl. This sucks. I can't have fun. They get mad about it. They need to punish someone. Same way that uh, people who see everything getting worse around them and feeling guilty and guilty, more guilty about it, need to punish somebody. And that is why we have these dueling sadisms that make up politics at the level of, of uh, 
the electoral, at, at like the conscious level. And this is why I get back to, if we're in this age of despair, and despair is born of lack of belief in anything but the self, then we have to go one more step. We can't go all the way back. All the, the reactionary idea is that we're going to get some of these beliefs back. Can't get any of them back. They're gone. Once they're gone, for, gone for good. As I said, as soon as Darwin is a possibility in your mind, as soon as it makes sense to you, you can't believe anymore. Not the way you did. And that happens to everything. We can't believe in anything else anymore. So what do we got to do? We got to take this next step forward, which is to abolish that last pesky thing that we believe in. We have to step on the gas individually, become individual uh, 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 existential accelerationists. Let's use that term, existential accelerationists. And we need to, by one way or another, believe in the possibility of something other than ourselves enough to reduce that belief in self. Because the beauty of it is, it's got to go somewhere. When you squeeze on it, it's got to go somewhere. Because belief is what powers your fucking blood in your veins. You don't get to choose it. It's why you breathe when you're asleep. It's not going anywhere unless you want to die. And if you don't want to die, then you believe in something. Well, that basic belief has to go somewhere. And if less of it goes into you, then it has to go into something else. And so go and get it. And you'll have to look. You'll have to look. And where will you look? Where is the only place you're liable to find anything? Can't find anything on the Internet. Can't do it. Impossible. It's a fantasy. As soon as you're here, you're not there. As soon as, you're here, as soon as you're here pointing at the internet, you're not here. In your body, you're in your head, it's gone. It's over. Everything there is engaged at the level of this fantasy, this hologram that cannot be changed. It's here. And so you got to do it. You got, and, if you're, and if you're earnestly pursuing that, which you'll have to because it'll be a matter of survival, you'll hit, he'll hit something and it'll be good. And it'll be good. It'll be the right thing because it'll feel like the right thing. And that only comes from, but if you try to do that without doing anything to the ego, the ego is going to determine what you bump into. And guess what? It's going to be what serves the ego. And you're back to square one. You have to actually have a felt displacement of belief outward. And that means you have to do something. And you can only do that if you're not here, if you're not distracted. And that, the real necessity will make you look inward. And then when you look inward and whatever you do, you fucking meditate, you take some mushrooms and, and listen to Pink Floyd. You have conversations with people around you. You sit in your body and you see, feel it. Something will happen. Not to everybody, not at the same rate and not the same thing. It won't be understood by everybody as the same thing, but it is necessary. It's a necessary precondition. So that's what I want to be called after all of this. What is the next stage of the grill pill? It is, existential accelerationism because we're not getting back all the politics of, of the premise of like either fetishizing like liberals fetishizing the new deal state communists fetishizing the soviet union nazis fetishizing uh like the teutonic knights rampaging through prussia all of those politics are doomed because they're trying to go back to beliefs that cannot be sustained there's all there's only one there's only one belief that has to be annihilated. There's only, instead of trying to re in, rebuild beliefs that can't be reconstructed.
All right. I was supposed to talk about that Weimar book. Uh, and honestly, I feel like I kind of said everything I wanted to about it. Mainly that there were two, forgetting everything that I read, there are two social democratic parties that determine the fate of world communism. The Social Democratic Party of Germany. First large-scale mass labor party in Europe. And the world, really. Because America, they had the Democratic Party, but the Democratic Party was never a working, workers' party. The fact that it came first actually doomed it that way because it was premature. You could only have mass, and, you, and that's because of geography and materials. Not ideology, not the American way, or not, uh, not the Constitution, and not our love of liberty. It happened because in the context of free real estate and endless possibility of, of, of uh, yeoman land ownership, the elites could afford to have mass suffrage and afford to have mass politics. They didn't even do it right away. They did it slowly, but they could do it earlier because they weren't constrained geographically the way that Europe was. And so they got the Democratic Party before anybody, but the Democratic Party had no class character. It was a party of yeomen. It was a party of small peasants with their own, or peasants who are emancipated and have no landlord. Sacks of potato, the sack of fucking potato but without even the guiding hand of belief in anything, because these are all fucking Protestants uh, seeking only themselves and worshiping only themselves. So uh, so anyway, we got the Democratic Party, but it was too early. Uh, Germany, meanwhile, constrained as it is geographically, coming into existence as a nation late, unable to compete in the imperial contest with the likes of France and Spain and uh, the Dutch or, or Britain because of their late entry, are forced to in, internally uh, develop and are allowed, and, and what, what uh, facilitates that is its federal character. And then within that, that furnace, you create the first real industrial proletariat, as Marx predicted. Uh, there in Britain, too, but uh, Britain had European, Britain had the social steam valve of uh, colonialism and the empire. Germany didn't have that. So you say, people say it could have been Germany or. Uh, uh, Germany and and uh, and, you, and England are, are like creating the first real working class in the world, but its militancy, its engagement with politics, is being uh, constrained in England all through this period by the vents of colonialism and imperialism. Germany doesn't have that; it has to ferment from within, and that means uh, that it emerges the first coherent working class politics. And the first major, the first mass labor party, the Social Democratic Party, which is the party that inspired the Bolsheviks in Russia to name their party that. And I would say that the problem, the question of why we didn't get the communism, the communism is that why we did not get the communism. When we needed it. And that really was when we could have got it. Maybe a different world. I think not maybe. Definitely a different world that happened. A bunch of different worlds that happened. But we didn't get that way. We didn't get lucky. We got the bad turn of the screw. We got the the wrong set of coin flips. Um, but we didn't get that one. We got the one where it failed. And I think one of the reasons... the bit, one of the big reasons it failed is that those two parties, even though they shared 
I would say the correct reading and understanding of Marx, as in they were generated by the real conditions of an emerging working class in that time and place, the late 1800s. They were filled with the best, the brightest, the, the, the most uh, 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 insightful, the most humane, but they, were, but they did it in two different countries that essentially existed in different times. But they came about in about the same period of time. The problem was is that Germany was the prototype capitalist state, the state that Marx thought could be overthrown in the near term through political action of the working class as a self-conscious uh, unit. Russia is essentially fucking feudal. It is a feudal society with a thin screen of a bourgeois uh, culture on top of it. And that distance, the distance in developmental time, determined the shape of the two parties and the conditions that they would be able to operate in. And that meant that by the time the crisis comes, the real crisis, the, the shitter-get-off-the-pot moment of 1914 to 1920, the crisis, capitalism hitting the thing that Marx saw, he was early in 1848 when he thought it was just around the corner. He said, okay, maybe it's, maybe it's a little bit further away. But he was a lot closer than he thought because people say, oh, when was that going to happen, Marx? It happened. 1914 was when it happened. But we lost. That's the thing. We've been living in the backwash of that defeat ever since. So when that happens, Germany is the prototypical country that is in this condition. Russia is a fucking feudal backwater. So what happens is, is that those social democrats in Russia, the Bolsheviks, around the, the most brilliant man of his era, Lenin, and in his position, Lenin, um, they emerge as this coherent, militantly organized, revolutionary-minded uh, organization that has been illegal for the majority of its existence. Most of the people involved in it spending a significant time in prison or unhiding or in exile, based, operating as, as criminals, as underground uh, figures. And they're finding a, a, uh, they're finding a political situation where the imperial authority has been uh, completely um, desacralized. Nobody believes in the empire anymore. Uh, and their opponent was a bunch of peasants who were politically inert and, uh, and certainly not uh, influential in the cities. Uh, and then this thin layer of inbred ra ro uh, fucking uh, thin-blooded Romanovs and then a very tiny layer of middle class. Uh, and on their side a massive, hyper-exploited working class that was packed into incredibly dense settlements right next to these huge, massively concentrated factories. Russia had, at the turn of the 19th century, by far the most concentrated industrial capital in the sense that the, the factories were bigger and employed more people, and the neighborhoods were more thickly peopled and more universally working class. And... A, a, a dissolving Red Army made up of uh, lumpen peasants and workers who've been given guns and then just walked away from the front 
they were the only potential progressive force that could have taken power in that situation. Lenin was 100% correct about that. The cadets, the SRs, the fucking uh, uh, Mensheviks, none of them had a plan. The bourgeois was not existent. It was a wafer-thin uh, uh, cookie. It, it was it was it was a fucking house of straw. You could not build anything on that working on the middle class. It, it was non-existent. It would have crashed. And absent the Soviet, absent the Bolsheviks, the military would have taken over. It would have been, as Trotsky said, it would have been a militant, uh, military-led reactionary movement that would have hoisted the swastika twenty years before uh, World War Two. Helped ten years before the fucking, uh, or four, three, two years before the Nazis were even founded. So they had to act, but it's Russia. It's a backwater. Even if they take power, they're going to be in immediate war with the, the Western powers. They're going to be isolated. They're going to have to uh, fight a rear guard, back foot action against capital all over the globe. Try to help working class movements where they were but only basically like, through an advisory position. The, the possi- and they would have to industrialize a country that is a fucking backwater. If they are thrust into the world of party uh, conflict or, or of, of, of multi-state competi- competitive conflict, which is what capitalism was birthed out of, innovation of capitalism was birthed out of the state conflict within Europe. The United States became a Hamiltonian uh, developmental state, even though nobody at the ground level wanted that. Not even the fucking uh, slave owners. They had an entire political uh, articulation opposed to it, and the masses of people were absolutely opposed to it. But they had to compete. And that need to compete is what organized us into the state we became. The need to compete would organize them into caring about themselves as a state, not as, as some sort of revolutionary vanguard. They wouldn't be able to act that way anymore. So what would be the point of fighting? Well, why, do you, what, why can you fight? Well, because this is going to be the spark that lights the fuse, dummy. We're in the end times. This is the big contest. The Germans will take it from here. That was the theory of permanent revolution that Trotsky conceived of. That was the thing that was in Lenin's mind when he sat those fucking dumbasses, Kamenev and, uh, and Bukharin and fucking... Uh, and told them, bitch, we're going. It's because they believed. They believed in the world revolution. And so around the same time, the same thing happens in uh, Germany has happened in February, in a year earlier in, in uh, Russia. And that is the fucking rubber band snaps. Kiel. The war is over. The Germans have been defeated. Stunning everyone because they believed the propaganda. And honestly, the position on the field had been pretty stable. Uh, and, and the deterioration of the, of the Germans' position was very sudden and late. So shocked the entire country. The British, the, the, uh, but at least the war is over. The butchery is over. Well, the, the German high fleet up there in uh, the Baltic, commanded by a bunch of old psychos, like people who thought they were Teutonic Knights, like, blood-drinking maniacs of the feudal remnant, but the Junker par excellence, uh, they decide that they got to go out uh, with honor. So they're going to fucking pick up stones 
and go out to meet the British Navy and go down into the ocean instead of turning over their glorious ships of the line to the, the British. And the troops say, and the sailors, the common sailors say, fuck you. We put up with this shit long enough. And there is a mutiny, a general mutiny in Kiel that touches off a conflagration of revolt throughout the country. But the problem is, the party that should have been leading that, the party that had been filled by the most capable people with the best analysis of the situation, who had acted the smartest in pursuing it, were in the Social Democratic Party. Because being part of Germany meant being part of this machine of accommodation. Because capitalism was... uh, Developing, and it was developing a middle class. It was developing a political articulation of anxiety relative to exploitation. And that means that you saw this reforming instinct. And so fine, you get the, you get the, uh, you get the extension of the franchise, you get called toleration, you get the first social welfare system, Bismarck, the great, the great mind of his time, the great liberal mind of his time. So, oh, Capitalism is is causing some squeaky wheels here. Where we're going to grease them, or the thing's going to blow up. And he did. He greased them up. Greased them up good. And so, and they legalized the SDP. the the the, uh, the Bolsheviks were only re- very rarely legal in in Soviet Union. As I said, their leadership kept going to jail. The SDP got to run in elections, and they got to fucking uh, send people to parliament, and they got to send a bunch of people to parliament. They get to create an entire political class of office holders. They get to create a political class of, uh, of newspaper editors and, and trade union executives who fill the ranks of this new middle class and who are also the brains of the party. Yes, it's, it's still being fed at the root by the organization of the working class, but it's all being contained by this party apparatus that is growing more and more middle class, more and more bourgeois, accommodating itself in its daily life to the conditions of the petty bourgeois, not the working. And so when the moment comes, this party that is that was born and contained the best analysis of, of, of German capitalism is not ready for it because it's fucking bourgeoisified. And so, when the first revolts begun, the Social Democrats act swiftly to prevent a revolution that needed to happen. Because the Bolsheviks were right that there needed to be a world revolution. They were correct. Now, that was a belief that was necessitated by their position at the end of the donkey, but it didn't mean they weren't right. The Germans were wrong because they hadn't spent the last 10 years in Siberia, or in exile, or, or getting beat up by the Cheka. They'd spent the last 10 years getting fat in offices, having tea cakes with the fucking local chief of police. And so when the moment comes, they can't see it, and they fight against it. And then, who is, German, who is the German Revolution's Lenin? Frederick Ebert. As in the person who was smartest, the person who was most in a position of power and had the best lay of the land. But his motivation was wrong. He wanted to preserve this state that needed to go. And so they created the Freikorps, which becomes the spine of the Nazi party, to put down uh, the revolt. Now, of course, it didn't help that the revolt was led by people like Luxembourg and Liebknecht, 
who were frankly not that competent, certainly compared to the fucking Bolsheviks. And more importantly, did not preside over a well-oiled machine of revolutionary, um, a, a well-oiled machine of revolutionary um, discipline like the Bolsheviks did. Because how do you enforce that discipline? In the, with the Bolsheviks, you fuck up, you might get killed. You might get thrown in jail. What do you fuck up here? What's going to happen? You're going to have to get yelled at? Rosa Luxemburg's going to say that you got to buy the Kugel for the next meeting? Who gives a shit? It's just there's less of a disciplining effect. And so the movement itself is undisciplined. And you don't really see... The, the, the thing that makes you know that there was a potential for a successful revolution in Germany is that between the initial rising in Kiel and the final putting down of like the Ruhr Valley uprising with where the Red Army was formed uh, in 1920-21, you saw enough sustained, effectively organized uh, political and military coordination and action by the left, broadly construed that it could have taken power and it had been coordinated properly. But part of the reason it wasn't is that in that initial uh, burst, there were a bunch of people who either went along with the SDP or stood back and watched what happened because they weren't sure. They believed in the party. They thought, maybe they're right. And then it was only later, after the establishment of the post-war government, and certainly uh, of the post-war government, and the creation of like an all-powerful president and all this, and the refusal to carry out any meaningful uh, social uh, socialization of the uh, economy, they started rebelling. But it was too late at that point, and it was unorganized. And that is because of time and place, time and space, determining the fact this thing all explodes at once, but it is unevenly divided and it's uh, unequally de- developed. And so it spreads across the world and it cuts the, hits different places at different points. And then the need to compete drives it forward like the Russians didn't want to fucking do capitalism. Nobody did. They had to do it. Sergei Vida had to pull them by their nipples to do it because they were in a competitive state framework. It would give them the tools to compete with the other powers. And uh, and so this thing kicks off simultaneously, but it develops in different ways because of the social conditions. There's no middle class in Russia by then. It, you're, it's a peasant. It's a bunch of army barracks on top of a peasant uh, uh, thraldom. And that means that the parties develop differently. They develop, uh, and but the thing is, capitalism is going all the same time. It's on its own clock. It's developing separately at different things because at different rates because of the conditions in Germany versus in Russia. But the glo- the thing itself has a clock, a clock. When once it strikes, the thing will go into fatal crisis, and that is what we got in 1914, and what we got. Through it is the suppression of communism in Europe and and then the assertion of a global capitalist empire that slowly, wallensteiningly 
steamrolls capitalism over the rest of the world at the expense of the people who live there and the ability to create massive amounts of surplus that can be ex- ex- enjoyed relatively guilt-free at the center of capitalism. To distribute the spoils of empire. And so once again, you got a time-space fuck-up. But it was not, and here's the thing, that looks, that looks mechanical. How, how could it have gone any differently? Because these things are made up of individual decisions that can change, and, and they're made up of a, a bunch of events that are essentially random. Assassinations, um, outcomes of battles, uh, Changes of position, changes of weather is a big one. And in that world, we're always uh, in, we're always living between these possibilities. These things are always open because somewhere there is a thing, a coin flipping. There's a coin flipping with it all around us at all times. So we can, we're, always, we're moving through these coin flips. So we, we cannot subjectively experience it as determined. We have to subjectively experience it as open because it is. We only know... What happened? We can't know what's going to happen. That is how we rescue us ourselves partially from despair. We, we, we approach politics through that lens while also cultivating love for those around us and for other things and for, and for, and for the universe, as, as cheesy as that sounds. Offloading our ego and the emotional connection of our ego to other things. And other people. And people and animals and everything. And then also embracing the eternally flipping coins that make up our world and that we're moving through. I mean, I can look at American history and I see a bunch of spots where real happenstance shaped us in significant ways. I've talked a bunch about Civil War and Reconstruction. You don't have to have that many flipped coins go differently for uh, Benjamin Butler to become vice president, for example, or for Lincoln to just not be assassinated. It was not, a, it was not like that was a fucking uh, and, and guaranteed thing. A million things could have happened that could have, by happenstance, changed the outcome of that assassination attempt. I mean, my God, they were trying to kill four guys. All the other uh, attempts failed. There's three other guys. All the other attempts failed. Uh, the guy who was supposed to kill Seward went into his bedroom and tried to stab him in the neck, but he had a, uh, he had like a splint from breaking his jaw uh, in a carriage accident, and he didn't get him. Uh, George Azerod, who was supposed to kill Johnson, and uh, I mean, there's another one. Azerod goes up and kills Johnson like he was supposed to. Then uh, Schuller Colfax, who was a radical Republican and Speaker of the House, becomes president. It wasn't a neck brace. That's incorrect. That I, I, I and I say that because I thought it was a neck brace, and I actually was looking at a recently looking at a uh, an account of the assassination, and it, and it said that that it's actually a neck brace, but or I mean a a, a splint. But let me know if anyone wants to fact check me on that one. They can. But these are all coin flips, and then what we get is the worst possible outcome. Andrew Johnson, the one man in the country who could have been no worse positioned there. That wasn't destined. 
I mean, there's a very good chance that if Henry Clay becomes president in 1840, yes, that you um, don't get a civil war, but you also don't get westward expansion the way that it happened. Because Henry Clay was, had a possibility there to govern the uh, with to govern <clears throat> the entire United States along the, the rubric of his American system of internal improvements and tariff formation and the building of an industrial economy on the model of Europe. But that would have required the slowing of westward expansion and the eventual end of slavery. Now, obviously, that system was resisted by the South uh, very strongly. And they said, hell no, what are you doing? We want to expand. We need to expand. Uh, And they were always able to uh, succeed at that with the people electorally because the economy kept fucking collapsing and giving land out for cheap became the only real way to raise revenue for for the government and provide any relief for people because there is no capacity, no desire for a capacity in the state to actually do anything. That's the minimalist notion of because all the power is in the in private hands, the power to over to exploit being number one. The only difference between libertarians and slave owners is that they think that they need the piece of paper because they've been acculturated and time and space has removed them enough from actual slavery that they have to have that piece of paper between them. But it's the same thing. And that was their electoral appeal to the broad, broad population is, hey, we actually give you land. Well. That was partially because uh, the Whigs were never really able to hold power consistently. They had one chance, and it was in the 1830s, 1840, after Jacksonian Van Buren democracy and its, its uh, approach to uh, currency and banking had seen a massive collapse of the economy in 1837 with no real response from the government. The Whigs took power at the presidency and the House and the Senate. For the first time, and the only time they'd have that in the lead-up to the war, went during the second-party system. But Henry Clay wasn't there to do that because they had nominated an old guy, William Henry Harrison, and then when they, after they offered the vice presidency to Clay and he turned it down because he was pissed that he didn't get the nomination, they give it to John Tyler, who is a Southerner, who is a a expansionist pro-slavery cycle, the exact opposite of their politics in every respect, the opposite, the negation of their political project. But he didn't like Andrew Jackson because he wasn't uh, tractable enough on the tariff. Literally an issue that they actually, the Whigs agreed with Jackson on. He becomes president. They put him on uh, on the ticket to say, hey, look, we're the Whigs. Anybody who didn't like Jackson, vote for us. Because, hey, that'll get you votes. And who cares who's vice president? Well, the pile of shit behind, uh, right behind the White House cares. Because look at this. The guy's dead, and now this guy's in charge. And he just put his fucking, he put uh, a stick in the spokes of the Whig agenda for the entire four years, 
Then the Democrats get in. You get, uh, in quick succession, the recognition of Texas and then the Mexican War. The, the final, uh, the, the reach too far too fast that led to the inevitable sectional split. Well, what if Whigs, the Whigs get in there and are actually able to deliver economic relief minus uh, westward expansion? They slow the pace of westward expansion and develop internally and effectively to grow the economy that way and therefore get the support of some of those would-be yeomen. Is it possible? Yes. And if it's possible, then it could have happened. In this world that we otherwise inhabit and it feels so determined, right? Because there's no, nothing inevitable about John Tyler becoming president. Now you might say, ah, yes, but at a much lower level, everything is determined. Yeah, but only in retrospect. So we have to always inhabit the ignorance of the moment. And that's what we can drive forward with. But only if we're motivated by the engine of love. It's about, it's about creating a heuristic, creating a tunnel, creating a path, creating a target, create, creating a hologram of the world to live in and orient yourself in. But then also, it's about creating a, a power source to drive you forward. And that can only be, that's a break, that's a dumb spiritual process of breaking down. And it's individualized. And all we can do is act with the hope that we can change and that those around us can change, just like Rocky said in Rocky Four. All right, I hope some of that made sense. Next week, let's say the first, I don't know how long the chapters are because I haven't looked at it yet, but let's say the first 50 or so pages of the future of uh, the future book of of Kim Stanley Robinson's, uh, what's it called? Something of the future, Bureau of the Future. The Future Book. Kim Stanley Robinson's Future Book. What's it called? The Bureau of the Future? Ministry of the Future. I knew it was one of those British terms. How about the Department of the Future, huh? Is there, aren't you an American? Come on. USA, USA, USA. Oh, the, yes, the Ministry of the Future. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I quite enjoy spending an afternoon in the Ministry of the, the Future. Oh, yes, I shall have another finger sandwich. All right, guys. Peace.